Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, currently, we are working our way through the, the complete fiction of Mary McCarthy as um, put together by the Library of America a few years ago. It's a really nice collection, and I recommend it. I don't necessarily say, think every work is worth diving into, but if you're interested in liberalism, you're interested in Cold War American politics, especially maybe ideas about the left, if you're interested in gender politics in particular, sexuality, uh, kind of the new woman, uh, like kind of the debates about kind of, I guess, conventional culture. I mean, there's a lot of work from the 60s and 50s that did that, like the beat writers and things that kind of critiqued mainstream society. But I think Mary McCarthy's voice on these things is, is really important. And I think her kind of cynicism about some of these hard choices that people were kind of being forced to make in the Cold War years. It's, it's really, really insightful. And I really kind of recommend you, you check it out if you're kind of interested in women writers from the 20th century. That's what the series that I'm engaged in now is looking at. Or just, just kind of interested in America at that time. This entire podcast, I'm in up to like 300 episodes, and except for the Philip Dick uh, series, I haven't really spent that much time in the the later half of the 20th century I was spending too much time you could argue with the the turn of the century you know jack london and frank norris and, and a lot of time in the 19th century as well but it's been fun kind of going into these 20th century writers even if they're they're less well known you know i, I don't know how often mary mccarthy is taught in colleges i don't know how often you know people pick her up anymore uh hopefully the library of america edition will kind of create a revival and interest in her um, and yeah, I think it's a good collection. You should check it out. Anyways, this particular episode is going to be look at the second half of Birds of America. You know, if you listen to my last episode, you know, I urge you to go back and listen to it if you want to know more about this book. This isn't my favorite book by her by far. It's probably my least favorite. And I just found it kind of meandering and, and sometimes kind of pointless. And that's not to say there's not people who are going to find a valuable point to it. I think there's a lot in this novel that can speak to people's individual experiences. Um, if you're interested in expat life, I'm kind of too much buried in that to really be too inspired by you know saying more about it. But if you're interested in the experience of expats, if you're ex interested in uh, maybe the Vietnam War era and young people's reaction to it, if you're if you want a decent coming of age story, this isn't the worst. Although we never really see him grow up fully. Instead, what we see is the main character Peter kind of learning that his youthful idealism is kind of misspent or misguided or just has its limits. And, and he gets that really through his experiences abroad. Um, he doesn't really, but it's not like he has any profound experiences. His experiences are pretty mundane and pretty banal. You know, the, I think like the climax of the novel we'll talk about later is essentially he picks up a homeless beggar woman, uh, invites her to stay at his house and she robs him and like pees on the floor or something. So that's, but I, but I think that shows just his, his idealism, his Kantian philosophy, his, his post-war liberalism, his 
advocating for civil rights and, and all these things. They, they do kind of hit a snag when he's in Paris. He just is exposed to the kind of the faultiness of his his idealism. I mean, it's part of him growing up, right? And, and again, I don't think we see him fully grow up. He doesn't come out of the novel like a fully matured character. The novel actually kind of ends rather abruptly. It basically just covers his semester in the Sorbonne. But nevertheless, I think there is something here for, for people. But, you know, I, I kind of express some of my just misgivings about it. Largely that I didn't find it that interesting of a, of a novel compared to McCarthy's other novels. I didn't feel this way about any of the other ones. The rest I always, always kind of inspired me right away. The Oasis, Oasis took a couple of reads to, for me to really kind of see what she was trying to do. Um, and I would say Cannibals and Missionaries, although I have some of the same misgivings about it, at least it's, it's, it's the more plot driven and it's, it, it feels like this one. It feels kind of contemporary. It feels like it's dealing with issues at the time. And since it's about a hijacking, it's obviously like so dated now in a post 9-11 world, um, both politically and, and just in the, the day-to-day kind of what actually happens on a plane. But, and, and politics in, with Europe, it, it's all quite different now. But I, I you know, I, I kind of dig that novel a little bit more. And I'll talk about it in the, the upcoming, the final three episodes of this series on Mary McCarthy. So, um, yeah, let's, let's... Um, Let's go into this uh, and finish up this novel. I'll, I'll give you my final thoughts about it. So in the first half of the novel, we meet our main character, Peter. As he's growing up, he's, he's, his parents were divorced. He lives with his mom, who he has a very, very close relationship with, a very close intellectual relationship with. They're both um, very fairly political. They both talk about politics. They're both kind of... They seem to be fairly mature on their political worldview. They have well-formed ideas, but they're kind of, again, idealistic um, ideals. They're not grounded in the struggle. And I think that's a really strong nature of it. And maybe this is partially Mary McCarthy's own anxiety about it. Like, you know, she's writing at a time when there are people, there's riots in cities and people are being assassinated. There's struggles. People are being hosed down in Birmingham and things like that. The civil rights movement was real. The SDS, these were real movements on the streets. I, I don't get any sense from looking at her biography, her experiences, that she's involved with that. And I don't think she's, she's claiming to be, and, you know, she's very consciously not claiming not to be an activist at all. But she's kind of cynical about intellectuals who sort of support these movements from a distance. And we see that overhanging a lot of this novel. In fact, it, it's really hit home when our main character, Peter, decides to go abroad to Paris, to the Sorbonne, for basically a, 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 I guess basically a study abroad program to help people avoid the draft. That's what it seems. And, and, and the Sorbonne can make money off American students trying to delay, you know, get a deferment for the draft or whatever. And he's one of those. And that's kind of the biggest betrayal of his ideals. And this is exposed pretty harshly in the, in the second half of the novel, is just how hypocritical he is. And, and basically by not going to Vietnam or not putting himself in the draft pool, getting a deferment, he's basically dooming some other person, probably poor, not a college student, to, to the draft, which is, you know, certainly not a Kantian ethic, right? To, you know, seeing other people as a means. It's just, you're not in an individual relationship with them. It's just the, it's just the, the fact of the way things work, right? At the, at the time. So, um... Yeah, so we, we meet them. They have a few interesting experiences in New England, including getting arrested for a really a farcical kind of protest 
uh, I think, presented as a, a farce of, of the civil rights encounters. In fact, at one point, the police officer says, like, like we don't deal with activists up here. We don't, we're not, like, down south. And, and she ends up arrested. And that's it's his mom, and I think he's in jail for a bit, too. They're, they're, they're put in jail, and he compares himself to Thoreau in a way. But, you know, there's, it's, it doesn't have that same moral gravitas that Thoreau or the civil rights activists who were thrown in jail had at the time. So... Um, then he goes to Sorbonne, and there's some really wonderful, I would say, kind of expat experiences, like the, the comical nature of coming in thinking you, you command the language and then being embarrassed by the porter at the, at the port, essentially, that you can't talk to or can't express your ideas to. Pretty much within one day, you're, you're taught your French isn't that good. Um, we get a really interesting epistle. I think that's one of the most interesting things in the novel so far was this letter he wrote to his mother, after the first month or so there, where he talks about kind of seasoning himself to Paris, the struggles he went through getting an apartment and, and his loneliness. And then go, he goes into a long politics about equality and you know, the, the, you know how he looked at Paris and was kind of felt bad about the destruction that took place during the French Revolution. But he's well aware that the French Revolution was so, so, somewhat the path by which France went towards democracy and equality. And then he goes into a conversation about equality with his mom, which I think you could just pull out of this novel and just read as kind of interesting uh, meditation on the cost of democracy and equality and should those costs be bared or whatever. It's certainly something I think about a lot here in China because most people I've ever talked to on these issues don't think any disorder, any disruption is worth democracy and uh, is worth the or democracy is not worth any amount of like destruction and disorder. They're really after stability, economic growth. That's their focus, and they're setting aside the political questions by and large. Um, but I will say, I say this by and large because I know there's Chinese democracy activists who don't share that view. But it's not anyone I've met. You know, the ones I've met basically think like what was going on in Hong Kong still going on as I'm recording this. Those protests are just disruptive and, and juvenile and, and not, there's nothing, there's no value behind those those struggles. So, um, you know, that conversation I thought was really, really interesting and, and probably one of the parts of the novel that kind of uh, piqued my interest a little bit more than the rest. Um, by and large, I just don't dig this character too much. I, I think he's a little too naive he's a little bit too idealistic and it comes off kind of obnoxious at times especially he seems to be smart he seems to be reflective but he somehow can't break free of his own perspective despite no matter even where he is even when he's exposed to hypocrisies and and just i think it's not even so much that he's being hypocritical it's just the banality of his politics and his idealism it doesn't get anywhere um but and I think that might be a criticism of liberalism, a criticism of some people who in the in the that boomer generation or that um, that sixties generation who I guess these were like Mary McCarthy's not a boomer, but she's commenting on people who are kind of observers of these struggles and they vote the right way, perhaps, but you know, they're not really willing to get their fingers that dirty. And that's how I feel about these characters. So the plot of the second half of the novel, not that much happens, actually. I, I think he just, he just goes through his expat life. Um, really, I think like, the most exciting thing that happens to him is he gets robbed by a, a beggar, right? But, you know, anyways, it's, there's like five chapters in the second half of the novel, and they all deal with just different events in his life. He spends some time in Italy. He kind of goes on another pilgrimage, a, a vacation within his vacation. 
to go to Italy and observe art and and talks with a few people about that. A lot of this is conversations. A lot of this novel is conversations with different people he, he runs into. Now, one thing that comes back again in the second half, just it's throughout the whole novel, is birds. Of course, the novel is called Birds of America. And I talked about in the last episode how, you know, of course, that's John Jane Audubon's book. And our Peter is in love with birds. He's interested in birds. He, he's... He sees them as having individual but collective identities. I think that's one thing. And then he, they wander. They're migrate. He's interested in migratory birds. And of course, he's, migra- he's migrating around. And his identity comes more crystallized as he moves around. And I, and I think there's a parallel there with, with um, the migration and the birds and, and identity, and especially kind of the collective identity. And the destruction of nature is hinted, is hinted at here. Although this is an ecological novel, there is the conversation about the destruction of nature, which I think is, is valuable. It, it's not, it's not, it doesn't make the novel itself readable. I wouldn't read this as an ecological novel in any sense, but it doesn't mean those themes aren't, aren't there in the backdrop of it. It's just something I don't think Mary McCarthy ever fully jumps into. And that would be, I would like to see her point of view on ecological questions, but we don't really get that anywhere. It's not really her main concern. Um, so, um, yeah, the first chapter in the second half after the epistle, after this long letter, is, is it's called Greek Fire. And the highlight of this chapter is a, he views a demonstration in France. And so he, this is, you know, the 60s were alive in China, in France, across Europe, Eastern Europe. You know, we had the... Uh, movement for democracy among many Eastern European countries, challenged by the challenging the Soviet domination and those Soviet satellite states. And of course you have the 60s in America and across the world. The 60s were a, an explosive explosive time. And not to get too um, sop, sop, solipsistic in my commentary here, but you know it's, it's another thing that like whenever I talk to Chinese about the Cultural Revolution, no one's is aware of it as part of the 60s. They, they don't see it that way. Of course, they know the 60s as a decade, but they don't see it as part of like the global 60s, right? And I have seen courses taught in history departments where I've been a student or, or, or heard about these courses being taught kind of about the 60s um, as, a, as a global decade, um, looking at Eastern Europe, looking at Cuba, looking at Latin America more broadly, looking at the United States. But none of these courses, as far as I know, have included China in them. And I, I think that would be a very interesting project is to put the Chinese experience, revolutionary experience of the 60s into a broader global context of the 60s. It's just the Cultural Revolution has been so discredited. I mean, even people who are like down with the 60s, I mean, I'm talking about white people now that I've talked to, you know, that are down with the 60s in the United States. You know, when they hear about the 60s in China, they think, oh, that was a lost decade or that was horribly misguided or it was just manipulated. And I think the, the prejudice at the heart of that belief is that somehow the Chinese weren't capable of democracy and, and couldn't have had that democratic moment. All right. As destructive as it may have been. Right. I, I think the more authoritarian a society you have, the more class ridden, the more um, under stress, um, the more likely kind of the 60s would have this that that moment would have been more violent and and more disruptive um, so you know it, it doesn't surprise me that it went down the way it did in china i know the history quite well but i you know i i just think there's a place for that china in that broader 60s conversation but that that's an aside and something i just have been thinking about 
kind of, so it's me, this is me not trying to talk too much about this book, which is, is not inspiring me too much. But anyways, he sees this protest in France. He observes it. Um, so in, in a sense, it is another test of his values. And he, this happens a lot in the novel. And again, I, I don't see where that goes. I see, I see his values being tested, but I don't see the end result of that. You know, I don't see him maturing in any clear way, except maybe becoming disillusioned. And, and maybe that's a Mary McCarthyism. She just doesn't really have any of her characters experience that much growth, um, even when they're, they're exposed as, as frauds or whatever. Think of, you know, the Groves of Academe. So here's what Mary McCarthy writes. Um, what shocked him as an American was that the demonstrations once captured so no signs of civic resentment. They did not go limp like civil rights workers, but hopped into the paddy wagons without further protest. It was as if they had been tagged in a game of prisoner's base. In the paddy wagon on the corner, the majority were laughing and clowning. Two were playing cards. One with a bloody handkerchief tied around his head was reading a book. Only the Norgan types from the Alliance Francaise were giving this captors an argument, which appeared to amuse the French kids so much amused the French kids as though they were being foreign and falsely arrested was funny. Desertation for all and sundry was making Peter nauseous. The rights of man were being violated in the most elemental way up in broad daylight before the eyes of literally hundreds of citizens, and nobody was raising a finger to help. At home, if this would have happened around Columbia, say, there would have been dozens of volunteer witnesses telling the cops to lay off, threatening to call up the mayor or his congregation of the Civil Liberties Union. At home, citizens were aware that there was such a thing as a constitution. It came to Peter that he and Makowski, having watched this whole disgusting business from the sidelines, could do something about it. They could write a letter to the Monde. Or they could go to court and testify at the student's defense, assuming there was a trial or some sort of hearing. He was ready to swear that the demonstrations had been completely peaceful until the police had used violence to break it up. And he could swear, too, that the, several of the kids now in custody had not been among the marchers. The police just arbitrarily seized them and roughed them up when they resisted. End quote. And, and that's, you know, that's... He's been on the sidelines his whole life, and he's on the sidelines again. And he thinks he should do something about it, and he doesn't. What he does, what he does do eventually is one student in his class, one of these other foreign students, these American students, does get essentially you know, arrested, and he's going to be deported for participating in these. And he does speak to the embassy or something, but that's as far as it goes, and the embassy sort of says, there's not much I can really do to, to help your, your, your friend. He's going to be deported. That's just the way it is. So it's just, there's kind of this, this shallowness about his, his political values. And, and I think that's what's, uh, that's really the heart of the novel. And, and it's repeated many times. That's why I'm going to, that's why I keep repeating it. But that's what seems to keep coming back. Um, so uh, then we, we kind of move into the winter and Roundtable with Dasmal Parsent was, is the next chapter. And this is essentially the Thanksgiving feast that takes place. We've got 14 people there. It's a round table, mostly expats, and they have various conversations. And I think there's two conversations that are at the heart of this chapter. One is about vegetarianism, and one is about communism in Vietnam. And the centerpiece of that second conversation is a general who's at the table. And he is, you know, the militarist figure. He is the, the patriotic American figure. And he's the one ready to expose, uh, you know, the, or defend the anti-communist struggle and defend America's position in Vietnam. And Peter's then put on the defensive in both of these conversations. The first is on vegetarianism. It's like if you love animals, if you care about animals' well-being, you should be a vegetarian. It's a really obvious position. I've heard people pirouette around this before. Um, 
you know, but if you actually think animal lives matter and you actually think animals shouldn't suffer, I don't see how you can justify eating meat. Um, or if you, you do it, you can do it cynically and indifferently. You can just say, yeah, I don't care. Animals suffer, but I don't care. That I can understand. But if you actually deep down believe in animal suffering as something that matters, or if you actually believe humans should not just arbitrarily dominate nature uh, in any way they want because it, it creates pleasure for them, you know, fine. But if you don't think that way, if you think that way, fine. If you don't think that way, then, you know, changing eating habits is seems logical to me. I don't think it's going to change much. I'm not someone who thinks being a vegetarian is going to change the world in any way. But it's it's a simple ethical decision, right? And it, it's easy to test someone's values, I think, about and that's where I think there might be some value in, in, in the politics of the personal, right? Now, the conversation about vegetarianism in this chapter is quite long. It, it covers about five um, pages. Now, I don't recommend at Thanksgiving having a, a debate about vegetarianism with your family. It, it's not going to end up good, even if you are a vegetarian. Don't bring it up. Bring your tofu turkey and, and leave it at that. But that's what we get here. We get a, a, a fairly nice it, it's not like people are it's not like today you know people talk about vegetarianism they get so upset um but you know here it is um quote i'll quote a bit here where right away i mean mary mccarthy right away exposes peter's hypocrisy here as an animal lover peter if he was consistent should have been a vegetarian too in perugia he had been nauseated by those poor crumpled little birds the italians love to serve the brain believe it or not was a choice morsel Bob, ever the logician, had pointed out that these larks and thrushes before being shot had lived free as birds compared to that of the existence of a battery chicken. This had not persuaded Peter to eat usatelli, but it had interfered with his enjoyment of broilers. Yet whenever he had tried feebly to interest himself in a naturalist diet of fruits and raw vegetables, he had come up against his juvenile gluttony. He could live without steak and chicken, he had decided, but he doubted his present ability to forego lobster and tuna fish. What he had not taken into account was the social pressures he would have to resist. He would need to be a hero, he now saw, right? And the one thing Peter's never going to be, if one thing this novel's clear about, is he's never going to be a hero. He's never going to really stand out from, from the group. Right? Or, and there's not, this isn't a group dynamic novel, but it's this, the social pressures there, right? And that, that's a theme in Mary McCarthy's works throughout. It's the social pressure to conform. And I think Mary McCarthy's overall opinion about this, based on her other works, is that we shouldn't feel bad about conforming to society. It's not, we're not bad people for doing that. I mean, there's always going to be contradictions and hypocrisies in our lives between our ideals and the reality of the world we live in. And yeah, let's not sweat it too much. Let's not make a big deal about it. But, you know, the, the fact that Mary McCarthy takes the time to write about Peter, Peter's own acknowledgement that he's doing essentially something wrong and against his values by eating, eating meat um, and not eating... I think that philosopher friend is right there, right? If you hunt a deer or something, that's different than just eating like a, a hamburger that's been, you know, mass produced in a factory, right? If you want to, if you want to make a naturalistic argument for for eating meat, then yeah, go hunt your deer. Don't don't eat your, um, you know, don't eat the broiler chickens, right? But anyways, there's different points of view in here. Even a conversation about are the Russians, i.e. the Soviets, vegetarianisms. Like, you know, at that time, among leftists, among liberals, the Soviet Union could be a model of a progressive society for some. Maybe less so than in the 30s when Mary McCarthy's said a lot of her earlier novels where there's a lot more 
communist politics among our characters. You know, this novel's set in the 60s where you wouldn't have had that same at least widespread pro-Soviet thought, but but still it's interesting that, that the, you know, the Russians are kind of thrown out there as an example. So that's the first, con first major conversation at Thanksgiving dinner. The second then becomes a discussion of communism and the Vietnam War, which has been in the backdrop of this entire novel, obviously, but hasn't been discussed directly that much. And the main center of this conversation is this is this debate that Peter has with the general. I'm not going to get in the blow by blow. It's fun to read. But basically what happens is this, this general is able to deflect every single argument he gives, every single liberal argument, like, you know, the morality of bombing, he's able to deflect it. Uh, the, the nature of, of the combat on the ground, right? The draft, uh, you know, even, even with negotiation, he very, very quickly is able to um, deflect every one of these attacks. And it leaves Peter basically without any arrows in his quiver anymore by the end of the, the conversation. And it's kind of, it's almost like an embarrassing situation for him because, you know, he is an armchair activist. He is just someone who doesn't appear to know what he's talking about, right? And he might. I mean, I, obviously the, the Vietnam War was unjust, um, but the fact that he's not able to articulate that in any coherent way, I, I think it's kind of maybe the limits of liberalism is here. And I, you know, McCarthy herself was a liberal, so but she spends a lot of time kind of showing the limits, I think, of, of liberalism. But, she, you know, her earlier books all showed the limits of, of kind of armchair socialism, too, among academics and, and intellectual types. So the next chapter is called Leviticus, and I'm not quite sure why. I think it's, of course, Leviticus is, is the rule, is the, the law, right, in the Jewish tradition. But largely the focus of this chapter is the problems at the Sorbonne, right? For many students this year, it was worthless. There was not enough even seats in the lecture hall for all the students they brought in. It seems this was just a, a, a wasted semester for students to, to get away. And, I, and that might be the case for a lot of study abroad programs. You know, it's easy to make money from foreign students. And, you know, schools may... Just, just bring them in for the for the for the tuition, and they're not getting a degree, right? They're getting maybe a certificate or you know, not much. You may get credit for their home school for for going abroad or whatever, but you know, it, it's kind of a playtime for for a lot of students. Um, the real issue here, though, with the Vietnam War is is just the morality of the deferments, and the, and this is the the most elaborate conversation we get about the morality of def of these types of deferments in you know, in this book. And of course, that's a huge issue that went into the ending of the draft. It's, you know, of course, part of it had to do with Nixon facing the anti-war protests and his domestic frustrations about the war. So ending the draft, you know, was kind of a brilliant strategy to to downplay some of those, some of that domestic protests and build up political support for himself at, at home. Um, maybe actually a brilliant strategy for U.S. empire overall. I mean, I think if in an alternate history, if they never had ended the draft, if the draft had remained, I, I think American empire would look very different, right? You know, it's just, uh, you look at the people who join the army now and what motivates them and, you know, and the type of people that get chosen, right? The, you know, conscripted armies are, are quite different than professional volunteer armies, it seems to me. And I think it'd be harder to maintain an empire with a draft. That's just my suspicion. 
um, who is that? I think there was an interesting book by Frederick Jameson written a few years ago called An American Utopia, where he basically argued that the army should be the agent of socialism, of, of, of communism in America, you know, and even uses the theory of dual power, dual power to, to talk about it. And he, you know, he seems to think that if you have universal armies, a universal army, that wars would be almost impossible to fight. And, and I think there's something to that. Um, we certainly haven't had the anti-war protests ever since uh, the, the draft ended. Um, so um, now what does Peter do about this? Well, Peter even plays with the idea that maybe mercenary armies are a better solution to this, which, again, I just shows him as kind of a hip, hypocrite, but naive and 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 basically admitting that, you know, he doesn't want to fight, but if someone else will fight for him, he's he's fine with that. Right. And that, that's, that's true so much as well. He's such a bystander. And that's what's kind of frustrating about this character. And he even goes so far as to say, you know, mercenary armies might be the best solution to this, this problem, which is basically eventually what happens, right? Where you have a more professional armies where people are there for the payday, for the salary, for, you know, so they can go to college or whatever it may be. And here's what he says. If he had the energy, he would send the plan to Johnson. He had another plan along the same lines to submit to socialist countries. This would be to give people who had degrading jobs like street cleaners and sewer workers or shoe salesmen the highest rewards in the economy. In Paris, it was almost always Algerians, he noticed, that you saw sweeping the streets with a broom made of twigs or laying sewer pipes. But there's no reason why the dirtiest jobs should be the worst paid. It ought to be the opposite. He was amazed that nobody but Peter Levy had thought of anything, something so simple, end quote. Uh, yeah, that, that's obviously it's, it's not a bad idea, I think, to have an economy that values drudgery, compensates drudgery more than it does. You know, the worst jobs don't have to be the worst paid. The way you get that through is, is, is labor power and union power and, and the struggle of working class people. You don't get there by writing a letter to, to, to Khrushchev. Who, who was empowered by then? Was it still Khrushchev by, by 65? Or to, or to Lyndon Johnson, for that matter. Um, another interesting conversation about modernity and technology, and that, that there's a few of that here, and that's part of this kind of American-Europe contrast, because Americans had such higher standards of living than Europeans at the time. Uh, you know, television was a great example of that, right? And, you know, is, is there, are these technologies useful? Are they valuable? Are they, are they essentially good technologies? And this is played around with quite a lot in some of the conversation he, he has with, with various people. Again, the second half of the novel largely is made up of of fairly interesting conversations that don't really go anywhere. They sort of test his values. That's what they do. And they force him to rethink things. But nothing ever gets done. It's, it's, it's like the oasis again. Um, you know, in the group, I guess you have the same kind of things, but you have real achievements being made by, by women in their lives. And, you know, they're struggling against... They're actually in the struggle. They're not like Peter opting out of it. Now, that struggle for the women in the group was things like sexism in the workplace and um, the, the job market, access to birth control, respect from doctors, all these things. Here, it's just, you know, it's play. Yeah, maybe it's just play. Maybe that's how we should talk about it. And that's it. Like, he has good ideas. I, like, I don't disagree with what he says here about technology. Quote, for each new invention, as far as he was concerned, ought to be viewed with suspicion until it could prove its innocence. In this ideal world state, a patent office staffed by moral philosophers would replace the censor, scrutinizing appliances for new processes and gadgets, and declining whether their ultimate effects would be good, bad, or neutral. Merely neutral and kept pending for a period of years on probation. Under a system like that, deter detergents, for instance, could never have reached the market. 
That's not bad. I mean, essentially, this is what the Amish do, right? The Amish are skeptical of all technologies. They incorporate them only with community consent, and they, you know, things that aren't going to work out are going to undermine their community values. They don't allow in um, things that are necessary or technologies that, like, for instance, that if they need to fly, they'll fly, as far as I understand, but to travel locally, they'll use, like, the horse and cart. Right. They may not have no telephones in a village, but a telephone in everyone's pocket is something they, they don't think is a good thing. So, yeah, I think that's a great idea. But Peter's not the one who's going to be implementing that. And, and you know, he's he just has good ideas. And those ideas, though, they're all sort of dead ends because there's no political power or political will behind any of it. That said, I, I, I like Mary McCarthy's kind of meditations on some of these these questions. All right. We're getting towards the end of the novel. Um, the next two chapters, Joy to the World, which is set around Christmas time, and then the Sibylline Interlude. Those are the two chapters. And they both basically center on his pilgrimage to Rome. So um, we talked about in the last episode how he's framing this trip as a pilgrimage. Um, of course, the chapter Leviticus showed that if it was a pilgrimage, it was a farcical pilgrimage. It was just a money-making scheme for the Sorbonne and a way for people to avoid the draft or to waste some time. Um, but still, he's going on his pilgrimage to Rome. He's an art. He's an art guy. His family likes art. He's been to Italy before, so going to Rome is a big deal for him, personally. But mostly, he goes there to see art, see the Sistine Chapel, see Michelangelo, see the sights, be a tourist, essentially. And the one really, really fascinating conversation here is about socialism and art. I really, really liked what was done in this chapter on this question of of how do you make art accessible to everyone under socialism. Now, of course, the, the backdrop here is like Walter Benjamin's work, right, on technological reproduction. It's been a while since I looked at that or reviewed it, but my basic understanding is that art kind of gained through mass technology. Like, that had to be reproduced songs. Everyone can have an opera house in there if they just have a record player. People can have paint the Mona Lisa in their house, people, or in a book. You can go to the library and see all the artworks. You don't have to go to Rome right it's it's kind of a bourgeois privilege to go to a museum for many people even even if you say like oh in new york city or, or in washington dc all the museums are free great but you still have to be able to afford a trip there and so that kind of limits access to that to to many people or makes it a once in a lifetime experience for many so the solution then is mass reproduction right but but for binyamin that sort of, it sort of loses something it kind of loses the, the aura but I think, by and large, it's a good thing that we can reproduce. I think it's a great thing that, you know, you can, instead of having to pay to go to the opera house and buy a stupid tuxedo and, you know, go through all the hassle of that, you can just listen to an opera in your house or have it beamed into your computer or, or whatever. It's great. It's, it's really radical. And art is more accessible. I mean, more people know about art, have access to art and high art than ever before. Right. And that's great, I think. But the, the, the question is, what do you do about things like these tourist sites under communism? How do you ensure that everyone has access to the Sistine Chapel when you can only fit so many people in at a time? Right. How do you how do you democratize access to to these kind of, of spaces that are by their nature limited because they're 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 one. It's one piece of art. Right. You can't have a million Sistine chapels. You can only have the one, and they can only fit so many people at a time. And Rome can only fit so many people. So how do you democratize something like that? 
Because um, the way the market does it, it just says, you know, if you can afford to go, you can see it. But most people can't. Now, the person he's talking to on this kind of turns this question around and says, like, why is it? Why is the Sistine Chapel essential for the masses to have access to? You know, why? And then there's even the commentary about, like, you know, the ancient Greeks, this artistic, intellectual, philosophical culture had slaves. Jefferson had slaves. So there is kind of a, an evil underbelly to a lot of these artistic cultures and these cultured societies that we, we praise when we look back at them, you know, or these great intellectual figures. They're, they're pretty odious at the end of the day. So he kind of questions whether we even need these kinds of things. Um, or whether it's essential that the masses have access to it. Now, Peter, someone who loves art, he's a liberal, though, and, you know, he wants to make sure everyone has access to it. So that, that becomes the question. Then. If we're going to just, if we're going to say art should be accessible to everyone, how do we make sure it's accessible? So here's what he said. I've given this a lot of thought to it. Prohibiting tours would help, at least in the winter, which is when most of the old folks come because they get the off-season rate. Or you could restrict tours to certain hours of the day. But the trouble is that there aren't that many hours when the light is good. Or you could have one day a week when the tours will only be admitted. That might be more fair, but I realize that a measly half measure like that wouldn't have a chance under the present setup. Under capitalism, you can't have the mildest reforms because art gets milk for profit like everything else. Well, wouldn't it, would it be better under communism? Well, at least there wouldn't be an American Express. What about in tourist? Actually, I was thinking more of socialism. You'd make more museums for people and distribute the art around more in the provinces. But still, you'd have a problem. So you'd educate the public to see the rationality of an entrance exam. If a person passed, you'd get a card that would admit him to all the three-star attractions, like the Mona Lisa and so on. And if he didn't, there'd still be a lot of art to look at. Then so as not to weigh the scales in favor of intellectual people who were good at passing tests, you could have a lottery too. Prizes would be books of tickets entitling the winner to see, for instance, 12 masterpieces of their choice. Like rationing during the war. A guy might want to use most of his tickets to on the Sistine Chapel and skip the School of Athens or whatever interests him less. I forgot to say that under my system, school children could get in without taking the test. The little kids that come to the Sistine Chapel with their priest or teacher always have a ball. I love to watch them. End quote. It, yeah, it's a, it's, I think it's a good value to try to make this art accessible. And his method is so laughable, though. You know, you have to, like, first you have to have a test to prove you're interested in it, then you're ranked, and you get kind of coupons for how many masterpieces you can see a year. The interesting thing, though, is, is decentralized art. That was, like, an idea he had in his soliloquy here. But to decentralize art, not have it all in Rome or Athens or New York or Washington, make it more distributed. And I think that's what the New Deal Federal Writers Project and Federal Artists Project was trying to do. You know, the folk music revival is trying to revive these things and make them accessible. So for me, that's the interesting solution is, is how do we decentralize art while keeping it safe, while protecting it? You know, and if you do that, though, do you lose some of its um, accessibility, you know, its broader accessibility? Do you lose some of its uh, historical context? Right. You know, it's like the, the Elgin marbles. Right. By putting them in London, maybe more people can see it. But does it detach it from its historical context? Is it, was it a theft that needs to be restored to, to Greece? You know, these are other conversations, obviously. But um, the question of, like, I think what the New Deal Federal Writers Project and Federal Artist and Theater Project and all those New Deal WPA art, art projects tried to do was make art more accessible to more people. And by creating more art in small towns, in, in smaller cities, and that seems to me a value that that's, that seems 
something that can be done, right? There are out-of-work intellectuals and artists. And there are many artists who right now only service the elite market because they're the ones who buy art. And public space doesn't buy art like it used to. And so it's harder for artists to make a living without selling themselves to the elite, which which does create a more like it depoliticizes art, obviously, when you don't have an art for the masses. So, again, I like the conversation and that's it, it kind of salvages this book, these kinds of debates and discussions. But Peter's just such a kind of annoying character about it. Um, it's um, it kind of weakens the novel, I think. Now, the final chapter is called Two-Thirds of a Ghost. It's the climax of the novel. And essentially what happens is there's a lot of conversation in the first half of the chapter about uh, Cholhards, I think. I'm not sure how it's pronounced in France. But essentially the beggars and the homeless people and the vagrants in, in Paris and the beggars. And that's kind of a, something that all these expats observed and experienced and, and knew about. And so there's a lot of talk about them. And he's the good liberal, so he eventually thinks he should help them, right? So what happens is he eventually... In, invites her into his house for like a night like a, uh, a young woman a young homeless woman he invites her to her house and it's another failure it's kind of another farce i it's, it's always um it's fun to see him kind of fall on his face when he tries to do the right thing sometimes now he immediately starts regretting having her there because you know she kind of smelled and she she was coughing and he couldn't sleep well at night and he was constantly anxious about it right and he, you know, he just felt uncomfortable with her in his house, even though, you know, he thought he was doing the right thing. And then the, when he finally wakes up and in dawn, he finally falls asleep. He was anxious the whole time she was there, but he finally falls asleep and he gets up and she's gone. So, quote, when he woke up, it was already light out and the improvised couch across the room was empty. There was a trail of urine going towards the door, which was partly open. She had stolen the outside brass doorknob of all things. And he wondered how she had managed it. Did she carry tools? Otherwise, his possessions were intact. So he's lucky she didn't steal, steal more. And that's basically the climax of the novel. And, you know, he ends up in the hospital. He ends up kind of having a, a, some kind of an attack. He ends up in the hospital. His mom comes and, and visits him. And he sort of, and, that, and that's how the novel ends. You know, back, back to his normal bourgeois life. Um, that's it. That's the story. That's, that's Birds of America. A migratory bird spending a season in 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 Paris. Um, yeah, so that's it. Uh, the themes of the novel, um, the expat experience, is a, is a big one. Of course, that's you know it's a lot of the fun of the novel. I think is an expat. A lot of the humor in the novel comes out of this expat experience. Another big one is liberalism in the Cold War. You know, you kind of have these ideological extremes in the context of the Cold War, and American liberalism was trying to fit its place in that. And I think it, it had many successes and many achievements. And uh, McCarthy might be kind of cynical about this at times, but this is a good window into the ideas and the, the equivocations of, of Cold War liberalism. A third theme, the coming-of-age story. The coming-of-age story. We've seen these before in this series. Um, now, I don't think he fully comes of age. I think it's kind of an aborted coming of age. He's, he's back to his mother's bosom at the end. He never really liberates himself from his mother. He's not like Huck Finn going off on the raft at the end. He's um, going off to Indian territory, whatever. You know, so he doesn't quite come of age, but there's hope. There's hope for him because he is. His ideas and their shallowness have been exposed, and I think he's got a stronger foundation. Um, Peter's got a stronger foundation in the future to maybe 
um, think through his perspectives more and maybe be more active. I think that'd be the that's what I would like to have seen, that he goes from kind of being an armchair activist to being an actual activist. Um, a fourth theme, the philosophy, Kantian philosophy and, and overall idealism. Uh, basically, these are the what Peter carries with him through his upbringing into his time in 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 Paris. Next, fifth theme, class, uh, especially in the last chapter, but throughout you have class dynamics. The, the student, the expat students are all middle class, upper class. He's from a fairly privileged class. And most of Mary McCarthy's characters are in that, that, that school. We don't see that many working class characters in her works, but she's, she's not aloof to them entirely. And so we have some class dynamics here as well. Uh, Family. Family is a really big theme here, too. Um, now we have a kind of a broken family, family affected by divorce, but a family that, that's really quite strong. And this relationship between Peter and his mother is very unique. And it's, it's a little bit creepy in the beginning of the story, but as you learn more about it, it, you, it becomes a little bit more natural to read about. Uh, what else? Uh, American identity. An important theme in this novel is American identity and, and how the expat experience helps create that kind of... A consciousness about that more collective identity of of being an American. Uh, social protest is a big one here. Uh, obviously, our character, our hero, is a is a, a bystander to social protest, but it's always in the backdrop. Wherever he is, there's elements of social protest and the debates about equality, the debate about democracy, and, and so much. I think of the '60s, the global '60s that I referred to before in this episode. The global '60s, so much of that was about expanding the meaning of democracy. That's so much the achievement of of the '60s, and the failure was maybe it didn't go far enough. I think that's that's the case in China. The failure of the '60s moment was it didn't go far enough in actually implementing a, a sustainable democracy. Um, certainly, nature is a is a theme here too. A number nine theme, nature. Maybe not as articulate as well as it could. It, it kind of comes in through the birds. The opening scene is about a great horned owl that he hears dying, a nature preserve. Um, and, you know, I think this is maybe a conflict with the liberal imagination is, is, is nature. We see it in the conversation with vegetarianism, the conversation about war given by the general, that, that debate, kind of the nature of humanity, the nature of politics gets to there. Um, should birds be preserved in their natural habitat or be left to to wander, whether that might be destructive or lead to their death or whatever? Um, I would like to, I, I wish Mary McCarthy had written maybe something more concretely about nature because that's something I'm interested in, but it's just fiddled around the edges here. Um, and then I think another theme, although it's alluded to in other of these themes, I think a tenth one, I want a nice round number, uh, revolutionary violence and equality. They're, this comes up several times. It, it's such a big issue in the 60s. It's just what is the cost? What's the price we have to pay for equality? And what's the path to getting to equality without going through a period of insurrection or violence or uprising? And it seems we can't. Uh, at least that's Peter's frustration is we can't. He's got these wonderful technocratic plans that may make a, world, a more equal world, right? But that's not how we actually get there if we look at history. The train of history is shows that the movement towards equality is often disrupted. It requires tearing down. It requires, it requires revolution, right? So it's, it's a conflict for a person like Peter to accept the necessity of a revolution. And this really comes home in his feelings about the destruction of, of art, artistic work from old regime France. 
uh, during the French Revolution. So anyways, that is all I want to say about Birds of America. Not my favorite book by Mary McCarthy, but maybe worth a visit if you're interested in that kind of thing. So uh, that's it. We got one more novel by Mary McCarthy to look at in this series. I know I skipped the stories. I'm probably not going to come back to them, but forgive me for that. But one more novel, and we'll look at, we, we've looked at most of her fiction. This novel is called Cannibals and Missionaries. It's all about a hijacking. It deals with, uh, it was written in 1981, 1979, sometime like that. Uh, maybe 1979. Um, her last novel. It deals with, well, it was published. I, I don't know when she started writing it. Uh, it's all about a hijacking by some Dutch and Arab um, hijackers. And the whole novel sent, basically sent, there was a, basically a team of people going to Iran on kind of a human rights visit from different backgrounds, like a senator and some clergymen and others. And on the way to get hijacked, and it allows Mary McCarthy to once again kind of study group dynamics and, and group, um, also uh, morality of empire and how we resist empire is certainly something important. It's, it's hard not to think about the war on terror when we look at a novel like this. I didn't realize how commonplace hijackings were back then. I mean, I certainly heard about them when I was growing up, but, you know, I, th these get presented almost like a commonplace, like a, like a Somali pirate, just like the cost doing business for some of these um, airlines. But, um, you know, that's the story. And the title, Cannibals and Missionaries, of course, comes from the classic problem uh, where it's a math problem, right? Where you have three cannibals, three missionaries on one side of the river. The rip boat can hold two. You need to get everyone across. But if the cannibals ever outnumber the missionaries at any point on the boat, which couldn't happen, I guess, on the boat, but um, or on either bank, the, the cannibals will eat the missionaries. And we eat one, and then you lose the game, right? And there's a solution to this problem, and you can make it more difficult with different um, variables. But, you know, the kind of the question is, who's the cannibal, who's the missionary? And it's not ever clearly presented. Um, it's an interesting novel, and I'm going to spend three episodes talking about it. It's really lengthy, too. It's almost... It's like 350 or 400 pages. So that will be what's coming up next, the final Mary McCarthy novel in this series. Um, but if you have any of your own thoughts about Birds of America, if you read it, um, I'm, I'll be surprised. But if you have come across it, let me know. If you took it up, uh, picked it up and, and checked it out, let me know what you think. Leave your comments below. You can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And yeah, that's it for now. I'll see you next time with the part one of my review of Cannibals and Missions. Yeah, I'm making it for all those years since I've got the pill. I'm tired of all your crowing, how you and your hens play. While holding a couple in my arms and others on the way. Chicken's done for a furnace and I'm ready to make